The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. For nearly 30 years, I made my living by fixing broken companies. Most of the time, the solutions were right there in plain sight. The big fixes were really small things. People just needed to stop for a moment and ask themselves if they were doing the right things, the correct things, in the correct order. If they changed things up, the steps, just a little bit, could a loss be turned into a profit. And making a profit gives management the confidence to take the next small step, or in some cases, can save a company from ending up in bankruptcy, or if in bankruptcy, from going out of business and costing jobs. These changes do not require a change in corporate philosophy, in goals, or even plans. Only in the operating processes. I don't think it's that different in this great republic. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. For example, there was a company way back when, already in bankruptcy, restored to profitability by first finding an average of $3 million a year in inventory that had gone missing each year for the previous five years, so that's about $15 million. And what we found was it had been leaking through customer service. By shipping product out the door via a memo or a phone call rather than a no-charge order made the customer happy, but failed to decrease inventory or to debit accounts receivable correctly. The fix was purely a policy and procedure fix. Place and order. No ifs, no ands, and no buts. Fixing that small first problem led to a bigger discovery. If the accounts receivable system was not properly debited for the replacement part, the commission paid to the salesperson was inflated by the same amount. And in some cases, that equaled 25% of commissionable sales over a selling year. That was a big oops and a very easy fix. And it's a metaphor for what's wrong with our politics today. There's a malaise in our governing processes. Voter participation in the USA is at its lowest of any major developed country in the world. And voter participation is falling because voters no longer believe that their vote matters. And the fewer the voters, the more outsize becomes the value of the voices of the extremes on both the right and the left of our politics. What we just saw in the Iowa caucus participation. 
forget for a moment the sheer incompetence that the Democratic Party demonstrated in the execution of the caucuses and look just a tad deeper. Campaigning for the presidency never stopped from 2015 to 2020. There hasn't been a recession. There was no major terrorist attacks. Daily lives of most Americans were not altered, and a spendthrift tax cut has kept the economy growing, even if modestly, but still it's growing. The company has bumped along from one presidential faux pas to the next. Trump isn't Teflon, but he has not yet rusted through either. People tune out when they've heard it all before and nothing changes. Nothing good happens and nothing too bad happens. And so people just go, they don't want to hear it anymore. There are 200 different television channels. Leave me alone. Maybe even more critically, people no longer feel represented. If you want some evidence, 75% of those polled wanted witnesses called during the recent presidential impeachment trial. But the majority of senators decided they could ignore 75% of the people, betting that they would pay no personal price at the polls this fall. All that said, the country is still bumping along toward Valentine's Day on Friday. So why vote the guys out? You know, the next guy will probably be no better, and I'm okay bumping along toward Valentine's Day. So, you know, why make a change? Why even bother to go to the polls? Because clearly, they don't really listen to me anyway. And the next guy probably won't either. And while all of this indifference is occurring, what are the Democratic candidates debating on the eve of the New Hampshire primary? They're talking about Joe Biden's vote on the AUMF, that's the, um, the authorization for the use of military force that was passed by Congress in the wake of the 9-11 attacks in 2002 and that led to the Iraq War. Now, Mind you, they didn't talk about what you should do now. They only wanted to talk about something that happened 18 years ago. When, in fact, the facts on the ground are proving that Joe Biden as vice president was more right than wrong about what we should do in the aftermath of the Iraq war. He, he advocated a federation and a federation of the Kurds having their own state and the uh, Sunnis having their own state and the um, Shiites having their own state would have had its problems, as does our federation, but it would have avoided some of the internal strife that we have seen over the last decade. And then when we got through talking about the AUMF in 2002 and how Joe Biden is responsible for all sorts of things post that, Bernie Sanders was then, his, he wants it to have it both ways. Bernie Sanders' support for gun manufacturers being exempt from responsibility for how their products have, have been used over the last 20 years 
Well, Sanders wants to claim that all should be forgiven because he has, quote, had a change of heart, but that Biden should not be allowed the same change, and you get it. That's when you just tune out. But if you didn't tune out at that moment, then came the argument over reparations for past sins against Black Americans. And yes, I would, uh, and, and you as well, would argue that there have been many, many sins. And that Black Americans, many of them still suffer as a result of those sins. But then let's get realistic, folks. The majority of Americans are descended from people who were not in the United States prior to 1865. Plus, I kept waiting through this whole conversation for Elizabeth Warren to ask, if we owe reparations to black Americans, why don't we owe them to native Americans? I mean, Personally, I could make the latter case even more strongly than the former case. And yes, we owe forms of atonement to both those major groups that were so wronged. But again, the majority of Americans are descended from people who were not here in 1865. So if they hadn't tuned out at the, well, what you did and what you did and blah, 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 they would have tuned out at reparations. But if you didn't tune out then, the next one got even better. Andrew Yang asserted that black Americans will have a net worth of zero as a group in 2053. To which I say, what? I want to see the assumptions under whatever economic model came to that conclusion. But of more immediate concern, how are statements like that going to encourage Black Americans to vote? You've just told them that technology is going to lead them to hopelessness. Why would they go and vote? Instead, if Andrew Yang were a pragmatist rather than an ego-driven populist, his pitch would be, if Americans want a more prosperous America, they've got to elect the right people. And those people are people capable of leading a third industrial revolution that is enabled by technology, not dictated by technology, in which American lives are largely made better. Restoring faith in the system is going to come from promises that politicians make and can then actually fulfill. Fulfill working with, but not imposing them on the American people. And you know what? Those solutions are staring us in the face. What people, when you talk about health care, what people care about, is how much it costs, not who's paying for it, as long as it isn't them. Why does healthcare cost so much more in the United States than it does in the rest of the world? And the answers are complicated, 
but they're not so complicated that doing an analysis carefully and publicly and explaining along the way good leaders, politicians with some leadership skills and some sense of morality can actually guide the American people to the right conclusions. And, and today, we know some of those conclusions, but we don't know all of them. So there are places where a benign government could intervene in healthcare in a way that is both possible and necessary. Pharmaceutical pricing is one. Why do drugs cost so much more in the United States? Well, the argument used to be that American pharmaceutical companies paid all of the R&D expenses and, you know, many drugs don't um, actually materialize. And so you have to uh, spread those costs across the price of the drugs that do materialize, blah, 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 blah. Well, let's just take a premise that says that's true. It, it really isn't, but that's a topic for a different day. But let's even say it's true. Well, then, isn't the right set of solutions something that includes spreading those costs across the other six major developed nations where they get their drugs for a fraction of what American consumers are paying? Why should we pay 100% of the bill for research and development? And, oh, by the way, all those failed drugs, you know, all those those research efforts that didn't materialize get deducted from the taxable profits of those drug companies year over year. So you're paying twice, ladies and gentlemen. And that is an area. I don't know the details of HR3, um, which is the House Pharmaceutical Reform Bill. I do know a little bit about it, um, what it, how it, with some of the mechanisms, but it's really hard to find a copy of it online that you can read and really see what's in it. And when you don't want me to see what the details are, I am suspicious it will not be good for me. So another place where the government should intervene, it's both possible and necessary, is in the FDA approval process. It takes too long. Just the reverse of pharmaceutical pricing, if drugs are tested and approved in other countries, the FDA says, no, we won't use that evidence as part of your FDA approvals. You have to do it all over again from scratch. Somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, the right answer lies in the middle. But again, for you and I to make sound judgments about the actions of our elected representatives, they got to come clean with us. Other areas where I think we should spend more money, basic research. If we could find a common understanding of what cancer is and how to deal with it, we could save a bloody fortune in healthcare costs at the end of life if we could understand what causes Alzheimer's. So let's spend some money on coming, on helping science to help our budget. Nothing in our current 
government approach to healthcare deals with 70% of the cost of healthcare, which are lifestyle-related illnesses. So how does the government, without imposing itself in a monarchical way, although lately we've been moving in that direction, how do we, how do, how do we move toward the wellness and sustainability curve, improving it, within, you know, what can the government do, if anything? Or is this an area where, by maintaining a private insurance system for corporations and others, we can build some financial incentives into altered behaviors? And most importantly, what the government can do in the healthcare area in terms of costs is to ensure transparency of the numbers. That people can make intelligent decisions about where to get their health care based on what it's going to cost from one facility to another. And the changes are really quite dramatic. And you know, there is something that's puzzled me for years. I think before we talk about expanding Medicare, we ought to figure out why still, despite years and years of effort, it still loses about $50 billion a year to fraud and abuse. Yes, it's getting better about recovering that money and about prosecuting abusers, but that net cost is still in the area of $50 billion dollars a year or half a trillion dollars in a decade. So 50 billion with a B in a year, half a trillion with a T in a decade. I think we need to understand and eliminate that fraud and abuse number before we talk about expanding the program exponentially. And you know how we might go about starting to do that? We might ask private insurers especially those who are part of the Medicare program, like United Healthcare, for example, how they make a profit at rates that are mandated by the government while the government loses $50 billion to fraud and abuse. There are some process things there. There are some operating processes, and I believe some more modern technology that could solve that problem. Half a trillion dollars in the next decade would go a long way to improving Medicaid and perhaps supporting a public option. All I'm saying is go after the facts because those facts are gonna lead to innovative solutions, better outcomes for patients, more and enriched jobs for workers, changes, that voters will reward, and by reward, by participating. Absent those sorts of innovative, positive approaches to answering the question, why does healthcare cost so much? Well, the reflexive response from voters is either to vote no or to not vote at all. 
And if you want an example, that's what happened in Iowa. 74% of voters did not vote for Bernie Sanders, the father of Medicare for all, who can't give us a number for what it will cost. And there was a significantly lower than expected turnout in the total Iowa caucus. So that means what we saw were the most liberal zealots plus a few gullible college students and that says a lot about the larger electorate's view. Now remember, Iowa is a majority Republican state, about a third Democratic, so about 330,000 eligible voters and about, including their 17 satellites out of, outside of Iowa, about half that number actually participated. So in fact, about 15% of the total voting population in Iowa. Climate change is no different. It isn't just carbon pollution. It is also the rate of all resource consumption. The question isn't just climate change. It's how to build a sustainable world, how to turn garbage into useful products rather than landfill, how to take more of the carbon dioxide we all breathe every day out of the atmosphere. You know, I keep reminding you that in the year 1 AD, there were a million people on earth. Today, there are 7 billion. So from 1 million with an M to 7 billion with a B. Each of them breathing 2.3 pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere every day. So if you want a sustainable planet, we're going to have to figure out how to take more of the carbon dioxide we breathe, as well as that which is emitted by carbon-based fuels, out of the atmosphere. And for all of you who hate coal miners, did you know there's coal in medicines? Now, true, doesn't require strip mining and slag heaps, but we do use coal for things other than fuel. Did you ever stop to think? where Vaseline, better known as petroleum jelly, comes from, is the key in the generic name. Yep, it comes from oil. It's not just fuels we are talking about. It is sustainability on a grander scale. And you never hear that mention. And there is so much opportunity in becoming a sustainable society that can expand that sustainability using our economic power to a sustainable world, making good jobs and good profits for American corporations as we go toward a cleaner world. Infrastructure, remember how in, in 2016, the Democrats were talking about an infrastructure bank and Donald Trump was talking about he's a builder, we were gonna rebuild the infrastructure. Well, it's now four years later and I don't know about you, but I'm still waiting for infrastructure week. I had a great idea back then um, for how to fund an infrastructure bank. It would have worked. Wouldn't have cost the American taxpayer anything. Would have given us a public-private solution 
we'll talk about it someday because I think it's still a relevant idea. But today, let's talk about the grander little thing. What we really need to talk about is sustainability, whether it's a transportation system or an energy grid. Yeah, if we had a sustainable national infrastructure, it would lead to lower carbon emissions. And since we are still the largest you know, emitter per person in the world, and we're not the largest emitter, just the largest emitter per person, okay, we need to get on with this. We can't postpone it any longer. It ha we have pay an economic price every day for crumbling bridges and roads, for trains that don't run on time, etc. What we need is an architecture which can be filled in over the next decades as technology met, meets it. And what we need to create alongside it, which we will come back and talk about on another day, is a sustainable funding model. A sustainable funding model, which is based on a simple premise of pay as you go. It can be done. We can find the money. It wouldn't even be hard to find the money. What we need is to find the courage. An architecture focused on sustainability will create whole new industries to replace those that will disappear. And Bernie, yeah, I keep hearing about solar is going to produce 20 million new jobs, a number that I question. Did you pull it out of whole cloth or was it a house number? So answer these questions. How many of those jobs will be in the USA? China is the biggest manufacturer of solar panels. How many existing jobs will be lost in the process in the United States? So what's the net gain of your proposal for the American worker. It's nowhere near 20 million. Because you're gonna have a peak, one, probably the manufacturing piece of this is no longer relevant to American manufacturing. Number two, if you build out a whole lot of solar technology, once it's built out, you need a fraction of that number of workers to maintain it. I mean, I hate to introduce little bits of small problems that make big changes in your pie in the sky, but that's a reality. And we all need a reality check in the midst of this political season. And you know what else a transportation architecture could do for us? It could tell us whether the auto industry and the aeronautical industry have the correct priorities today, or it would initiate a course correction toward the right priorities. For example, I hate, I truly hate, but I do it umpty -um times a week. I hate backing into my parking space in the garage. I look forward to buying a new car that will do it for me. I can just push the button and say, put it in C17. But even more important, 
isn't it more important that that next car be all electric and that it not require frequent recharging using electricity, which is generated off-peak by natural gas? Carbon polluting. I want an electric car that is not carbon polluting. If we're talking about solar, we got to figure out how solar works and can be retained within a car to eliminate the need for off-peak generated electric power coming from, by, from turbines turned by natural gas. So there is an example of how an appropriate transportation architecture could help to set priorities by focusing first on sustainability and then after we've got sustainability and we've made it affordable so that it has an impact, then we could look at full automation, which, and this is a personal opinion, remains a solution in search of a problem. And if I haven't bored, bored you to death yet, why don't we take a look at some of those education promises? built on some interesting premises on both sides of the political spectrum. I ask you, does it really matter that the federal government provides $70 billion a year, B with a billion to K through 12 education, which is fundamentally funded at the state level? Does more money necessarily lead to better outcomes? Nah. Dollars should be driven by the outcomes and not the reverse. You know, I do believe that universal pre-K is a good thing, but I only have anecdotal evidence to support that. But what I also know anecdotally and, by, and statistically is that pre-K only works if it's part of a stronger nuclear family. It is not a substitute for a strong family. So maybe if we want a better educated population, strong nuclear families that talk to one another at the dinner table may be as important as pre-K. Can't really tell you, but somebody needs to do the research. What I do know is that K-12 public education has not been fundamentally rethought since the turn of the 20th century when the agrarian school calendar still made sense. That school calendar doesn't make any, more, any sense anymore in the 21st century. But it may explain why our kids are now 24th in math achievement in a world economy driven by science and technology. Have you heard any one of the Democratic candidates or the president speak of, worry about, or acknowledge that our kids are now 24th in math achievement in a world economy that is driven by science and technology. Because boy, I missed that one. But if you wanna know things that keep me awake at night, that is one because that's gonna cost us our technology edge if we're not careful. Teaching is a very stressful profession, but is it more, I mean, 24 little first graders in a classroom, that's a lot of little first graders, okay? But 
Is it more stressful than any other profession, say police or fire or military or a CPA at tax time or a commissioned salesperson who has to make a quota every week, every month, every quarter, or nursing where if you make a mistake, you can cost somebody their lives. And none of those other professions, stressful as they are, do workers get a six-month paid vacation. I think we need to do fundamental reform of our educational system of K through 12 as a predecessor step to free college for only a third of our population paid for by 100% of our population. Maybe our focus instead of the latter should be on making K through 12 education something that prepares every graduate for lifelong learning and the basics they need to build upon for multiple careers through their working lives. We got to create a whole new K through 12 model and we got to get everybody involved in doing it. Parents, students, teachers, researchers, and legislators at local, state, and federal levels. We've got to look at what works, what doesn't work. We've got to debate and we got to be willing to take risks and experiment. We've got to trust the states to be laboratories of innovation, while at the same time making sure that those innovations are spread across the entire student body of those states, not restricted to just a few in the right school districts. And you know what? I think public-private competition in the public square is not necessarily a bad thing, but public education is a bedrock of the American way of life. And when the president sneers at public education and calls it, quote, government education, I fear he does it as his peril because he is simply not in a position to afford to scare moms into going to the polls and voting no. So if you're still with me on this eve of the New Hampshire primary, I would submit that re-engaging an exhausted and discouraged electorate requires reform, not revolution, changing the operating policies, not abrogating constitutional guarantees and national norms. The changes need to be small enough for people to grasp and thus to nod their heads affirmatively. Changes that are positive, not an exchange for something they know, no matter how battered and broken, for something unknown, which might have larger consequences. Democrats cannot hope to win the 2020 presidential election by throwing up their hands and telling people how much worse their lives are going to be in 20 years. Smothered like mushroom stems under the cap of government. You don't encourage greater participation by promising to replace the freedom to succeed with the surety of failure. Doom and gloom do not win elections. 
Republicans should not hope to win the 2020 presidential election by threatening people with violence. I've heard too much talk about civil war. No, we can't threaten people with violence if they won't continue down a path of national indifference and racial polarity. Masking government corruption on a scale not seen since the Teapot Dome scandal of the 1920s or Tammany Hall in New York City in the 1890s. Nope, none of those things will bring voters back and thereby strengthen the republic. What will strengthen the republic is a government that respects the voters by being honest, positive, realistic, and optimistic. A government that delivers the small things that make a big difference. And on that vein, we'll be back soon to talk about how that future may look if we leave our children with a national debt that now sits at 23 trillion with a T dollars and is rising by over a trillion dollars a year. So 23 trillion this year, 24 trillion next year, 25 trillion by the 2022 midterm election, 25 trillion and counting. And you know, every trillion dollars in increased debt requires billions more in interest to service that debt. And that's money that cannot go into the small things that make a big difference. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.